Table Radio in the continuation of our fall series, Live a Life of Rescue. This sermon was preached by Josh Wilton on Sunday, October 30th, on the seventh commandment, Do Not Commit Adultery. God of light, let your face shine on us. Steamy, isn't it? That's from the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And if, if I've got this right, you weren't even supposed to read it until you were a mature boy because it was so steamy. It's like erotic fiction. There's all kinds of innuendo in there, and it's right there in the Bible. This would be banned if it was standalone in many states down south. <laughs> love is great. Can I just say that? Love is the best. And that makes it so much harder to talk about, or I wonder why it's so much harder than to talk about than murder. We talked about murder last week, and it was so fun. It was so engaging. And we got right to the heart of it. We didn't just externalize it and go, oh, all those bad murderers. We talked about ourselves and anger and how Jesus points us to right to the inside, to the root of all murder, of wanting to disintegrate and erase people. And it was so meaningful. And it was so substantial. I would rather talk about this than love, than romance, particularly. I've done a lot, and it's not because I hate romance. I see you smiling, Naomi. I see you. It's because I love romance. And because I am an idealist. And it strikes to the very core of my longings. To love and to be loved. To know and to be known. And here's the thing about love, just generally, beyond even romance. Love is, is both natural and it's unnatural. We all understand that it's natural. The sultry, earthy, saucy kind of love that just sort of overtakes you and you feel almost like a passive agent to it. I mean, we see it. It's in all the stories. It's in all the movies. Every rom-com I've ever seen, that's how it is. That comes easy. And we heard about this sort of love in the reading from Song of Songs. And here's another piece. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. That's love. And it's so self-explanatory, it doesn't even need much more saying beyond that. This is the good stuff. When you're in this state, you've got a love adrenaline. Like you could lift cars. Man or woman, you could lift cars. You're just so full of energy. It points to delight. It points to goodness to the goodness of getting to know each other. It's happening you. But here's why it's hard to talk about this. is because the adrenaline runs out. And you realize the other part of love, which is not a, just adrenaline, it's love, is action. And this kind of love is only natural to a point. And there's a kind of love that kind of feels impossible because it's actually working, it seems, against your own self-interest. 
When that love adrenaline runs out, it gets so difficult. Not only are there silly fights where we're too quick to take offense, or we start getting annoyed at personality quirks, but also real betrayals and bad temper. Prolonged periods of generally being unpleasant and uncharitable. Like, and this extends beyond just romance. This is, this is relationships, deep ones, period. And you know, I thought about it. You know, those little acts of betrayal that add up, we seem to, at least I do, I seem to remember those more than the points at which I connect with my wife or with my friends. I remember the acts of betrayal. And sometimes they're, well, real or imagined. And if they're just one or two smaller, medium ones a year, that over 10 years is like 20 of them. And then you've got enough of a list that you can make a case that your partner is the worst person for you ever. And that's why this is hard to talk about. We're going to cover some ground here. It's too much. We're, we do this podcast, this video cast afterwards. We'll do it called the Monday After. We'll explore more topics. But I also want to open this up afterwards. If you want to have more of an extended conversation, then chat with me. I'll come up here and we'll sit in the pews and just have a chat about this if you have any questions or just want to chat about it. But from the outset, this is tough stuff. It's tough stuff because so many of us feel so bad about this topic. Marriage, sex, adultery, And we'll throw in a fourth one to round it out. Divorce. See, fewer of us in this room, I bet, have been affected by murder than any of these topics. I think most of us, either in our own family history or in our own personal history or something we're going through right now, deal with this. A longing for companionship. The fantasy of it, really. Whether you're single whether you're married. It's deep. The fact that we can feel so much shame about these topics, so much shame and anger, anxiety, fear, points to the power of relationship and to our deep longing to be received by another, to know companionship, and the powerful impact when the relationships close to us sour and turn against us, even to the point of betrayal. I'm going to pray, because this is big stuff. And God, we need you to be present. Would you warm our ears and our hearts to hear what you have for us through your scriptures? This grand love story of you and your people, this rescue mission of Jesus to call us into union with you that we may find peace and companionship. In Jesus' name. Here's the thing. We've been going through Live a Life of Rescue, which is this story of generational slaves being brought out of slavery by a God whose name they don't even remember and know. Before they did anything, 
God heard their suffering and he brings them out through Moses and leads them to a mountain to have a point of contact. And he speaks to them having already rescued them. He's already brought them into relationship. And it's an uneven one. He has the power to deliver. He has the power to act. He sets the terms of the relationship. And he says in the very outset of these words he gives them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, who rescued you. Then he has a few, no other gods, no idols. Do not take my name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't murder. And here we get, don't commit adultery. And as we've said before, in case you're new here, these are sort of base layer for a civilization or a community. There, it's actually a pretty low bar. And in this case, it's not even saying love well. It's just saying don't cheat on each other because that will lead, as we know, to chaos in a community. There's so much more. The backdrop when talking about adultery is to talk about marriage. And that's built into Genesis 1. It's built into the very creation story that says, so God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the image gets expressed in two different people, unique And that's where you get the fullness or a fuller image of God. And then in chapter 2, it's a more specific story about the creation of Adam and Eve. The Lord said, it's not good for this man, Adam, which means earth, to be alone. I will make a helper. And before it seems like a lower role, God is also seen as the helper, that same word throughout the scriptures. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the animals. Sorry, here, let me skip. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is the first poem. This is the first song. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. So even, like, just to bypass all the gender hierarchy stuff, like, this is a beautiful picture of two people being united in their marrow. And that points to this longing many of us have to have this communion and companionship. So that's the basis And when you read the rest of the scriptures about marriage, especially as you get into the New Testament, you realize that Jesus' first showing as he's a teacher and as Messiah, as deliverer, is to turn water into wine at a wedding. He's got several parables about wedding banquets and feasts. And then if you get all the way to the end, Revelation 19, there's this picture, this sort of climax where it's a wedding, a wedding feast of the Lamb. 
wedding and marriages are not just strictly a nice social convention that God thought up, but they thought this is a picture of how God wants to relate to his people. There's so much more. So marriage is not only this longing, this companionship, but also points beyond itself to this relationship with God. And it must, it must. Because marriage does not deliver the goods, Frank, and it's not just mine. (laughs) I've done lots of pastoral counseling. There's so many gaps. There's so much distance sometimes from the ideal to the reality. And that is why in the marriage prep, if you ever do it or if you've ever done it, we do a, a survey, and this survey just asks you to respond to some phrases like, um, uh, nothing could be better in my relationship with my partner. And you'd rate it. And some people say, that is absolutely true. And that's one of those things they call an idealistic distortion question. They intentionally put some in these surveys to tease those out. Because if you answered yes, like absolutely, you're going to be set up for disappointment. And that's the reality of it. Once you get past the adrenaline, you're working with two real people who have great differences and cannot live up to the ideal. And those create conditions which adultery happens. you see that? Here's the thing about these kinds of relationships. Nowhere else can we know the power of giving and receiving the very love of God. And that's built into like a, a marriage ceremony and into the liturgy, at least a Christian one. God is in the midst of it. There are witnesses. What God has put together, let no one tear asunder, is the classic language. It's for the glory. If you're single, you fantasize it. Once you get to a certain stage in your marriage, you fantasize it about it again. Because you want what was there in the beginning. And adultery is a breach of the things we long for most. We want to be received. And we want to receive But here's the pinch. We only want to receive to a point. I, for example, want unconditional love. But I've learned that I have my limits on how much love I'm willing to give. And it turns out they're pretty low limits over time. And I need someone else involved in the relationship, and by this I mean God, and the power and presence of Jesus Christ to teach me more about love so that I may better love. That is the source. Okay. Lord, direct, direct me. And adultery is the ultimate betrayal. That's why it's in the top ten, in the ten words. And I don't know if you know this, but if you start 
Going, going around in the rest of the Old Testament, the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you see some extra words in there of application of these ten. And the penalty for adultery is death. That's it. Now, there are some exceptions. If you were cheated on, you could decide to have mercy and just issue a certificate of divorce to your wife and her lover. You couldn't just do one or the other. It had to be even. And I'm intentionally using gendered language because it was totally balanced towards the men. So men, there was many arrangements. It wasn't this just monogamous kind of thing. You could have relations with concubines, with servants. If a man had relations with a virgin, he was to marry her because it was polygamous, was allowed. That's very actually kind of complicated. And uh, a man could just send his wife away and issue her a certificate of divorce. It was very uneven. And we've got a couple of issues with, with this because... God sees this as such a breach that in the end it leads to death. And that gets part of their sort of their law code. And it's interesting though that as we go through the Old Testament, someone else pointed this out. There's these three really big scenes in the Old Testament leading to one in the New Testament. Where although the penalty in the Torah is death, we see people who do these things not die. So there's a way in which God sets this up to show how serious this is, what a breach it is, and then gives a way out, and it points forward. So for example, this is before the law of Moses. This is in Genesis. There's Abraham God makes a promise to. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Israel has a bunch of kids. They form the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those kids is Judah. There's a really nasty scene in Genesis chapter 38 in which Judah is going to a prostitute. His daughter-in-law disguises herself, then has relations with Judah, takes a piece of his clothing, and then when Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, he goes, you're a whore. And then she pulls out the article of clothing, and he's like, oh, shoot, that's my baby. That's a scene. But do you know, instead of death there, that, that Judah is in the line of Jesus, Judah becomes a main figure. The tribe of Judah is where King David comes from, which in the Bible is very important. And they carefully considered the lineage because there were promises about God's deliverance through this certain line. And this nasty story that in the law should lead to death gets brought into the story about a rescue. And even if you go one further, you've got King David who is one of the highlights, one of the best, according to the Bible, 
David is one of the best. Also, according to the Bible, he does one of the worst things. We talked about this last week with murder. While his servant Uriah is out fighting the fight for him during a war, he sees Bathsheba and he, he enters her. He gets to know her. This is adultery. Now, it turns out she's pregnant. Uh-oh, I'm going to get found out. Well, shoot, let's have Uriah go in the front of the line, he tells his commanders, so that he gets knocked off. He gets killed in battle. That was the whole scene. And then it turns out other people in that army, the battalion, whatever, they also die. And his commanders say, when, people, when David, King David asked, well, why did these other people die? That was a terrible strategy being pushed right up against the wall where someone drum, dropped a rock on someone else's head. Said, well, your servant Uriah is dead. Isn't that crazy? He gets called out by a prophet. He goes, oh no, what have I done? And that's where we get one of the most beautiful psalms in the entire Bible, Psalm 51, which we sang last week and we'll sing again afterwards about a man who says, I have completely blown it. Just don't leave me, God. Have mercy on me. And I said last week, I'm a little conflicted about that. Because he had all the power. And he was representing God as king in a theocracy. But I do want mercy myself, so ah, caught in the middle, conflicted. Now, one more story. There's this minor prophet. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. I don't know if you've spent much time there, but there's this one, Hosea. And he, God has the prophets do some strange things. And this one, he has this prophet marry someone who's unfaithful to him. So let, let me just read a bit about this because it's, it's quite a shock. It's, go, it speaks to how this is so much more than just about social relationships, the human side of things. This is Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I don't know what a cake of raisin is. I imagine a scone of some kind. It seems strange to put that in there. But this, this, this going after your appetites and following your, com- your comforts apart from God. But here's what he says to Hosea. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. He's speaking to his people through the prophet. And no longer will you call me my Baal, which was the name of a foreign god. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. 
This is God's promise to his people through Hosea. They deserve death according to what he has already revealed. But we see even in the Old Testament, it may surprise you, a God who points past that judgment into life. And that's good news. So those are the three Old Testament. Now let's get to the Jesus part. This is great. I mean, if you have, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 8. If you've got it on your phone or in front of you. Woman caught in adultery. Now, if you are looking at it or if you've seen it before, there's usually a couple brackets there or a little asterisk of some kind that tells you this is probably not originally in the Gospel of John. Actually, when you look at the old manuscripts, it's in different spots in John, and sometimes it's in whole different Gospels. But they've kept it here because this is, according to what most people think, part of the Jesus tradition. And it's embedded right here, and it fits textually quite nice because there's a conversation about who has the authority. Moses who received these ten words of the extended law, was the mediator between God and his people. And then who's this Jesus? And that's the setup here. Verse 2. Early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees were sort of the, the, the people who were really serious, very pious, Like they really wanted to put in practice their devotion to God. So much that those laws that they had, they're like, let's build a moat around them so we don't even get close. So they had extra laws. And the scribes are sort of the people who who got to decide things. They knew the law, and so they could declare someone guilty of breaking it. So these two groups, they brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. And remember, she's vulnerable. Yeah, this is totally unbalanced from the get-go. Because where's the man? And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Okay, so she's been caught in the middle. So you've got witnesses. Now in the law of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. That's in Deuteronomy. So what do you say? So they're approaching him as a teacher because they want him to say something against the law of Moses, which would make him a false prophet, which would mean he would get stoned. This would be a simple solution. They're trying to set him up here. Now, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We have no idea what he writes. A lot of people have preached sermons imagining what he writes, no idea. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Some people, and I think this is compelling, have thought that this action of writing in the dirt is a parallel to God writing the law on stones of, of tablets, tablets of stone, because he does it in two. 
I don't know, it's speculative, but this is certainly tied to his authority to speak. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I don't know about you, but I've also thought, I've often thought, oh, well, they just all realize that they also have sin in their lives and that they're impure, and so they just slunk away realizing that was the issue. Not exactly. The issue is likely that you had to have two witnesses in order to get someone to charge someone, and they had multiple witnesses. But in the law itself, if you are a malicious witness, when you falsify evidence or set something up like they have here, that you will be subject to the same judgment. Isn't that clever? So Jesus knows that this is a setup because where is the man? And they all realize that the penalty for them would be the same stoning. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And at this point, it's just Jesus and the woman, which means there's only one witness, and he wasn't even an eyewitness. So there's no one to accuse her. So he has still treated the law as good and used it as a reference point. But look, she said, no one, Lord, no one condemns me. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, that captures still the importance, the sobriety of the issue of adultery. This is a real thing. But it looks beyond it, from death to life and some restoration. That's great. There's too much to talk about. This is so good. I mean, this is the bad. This is the, like, I'm not enjoying this part. Here's where it gets real. This is it. And then I'm going to find a way to end. And then if you want to keep talking about it, let's do it. This is in Matthew. Yeah. Let's do this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is doing the same thing here that he did with murder. He internalizes it and intensifies the commandment. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And notice here, this is gendered language because of the setup. Just notice that it's equalizing the playing field. And of course, nowadays we say this would apply not just to a man, but a woman as well. But when a man had disproportionate power, and when adultery is mostly seen in terms of a married woman, and that's about it, this goes, cuts so much deeper and more personal Jesus is saying it's not just about the act of committing adultery, which you see in those 10 words, about some social good or at least a baseline level where people can relate. It's at the very core of every person. 
I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he does this typical Hebrew overstatement, just to emphasize his point. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better than you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is Jesus talking about hell, not any preacher, not any apostle. This is Jesus himself. This is your plan with fire. And that's why this is such a tough topic. This is, pornography's in there. It's not just that, though. This has got to extend. If you're talking about the heart, it goes into romance novels, rom-coms, a bunch. It goes into our fantasy life. Right at the core. And shows us our own incapacity to really receive others as they are. This desire to take someone else's image, our view of them, our idealized view of somebody, and make it about us. Yeah. I mean, that can't just be me. I hope it is, but I don't think it is. And it's like, well, what do I do about that? That's where, at least I get to this crisis point. Because I want the longing. I mean, I, I want the communion. I want the companionship. But it just, it. Sometimes in a relationship, you're like, just being in a relationship makes me want it more and exposes the fact that it's not present in the way that I want it. This is tough. And here's, here's some good news. Here's some good news. In Ephesians, which is a letter that that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus, he does talk about marriage. He talks about relationships. And there are some hotly controversial things about gender roles and the rest. I'm going to willfully skip those from now because they would distract from the point. Here's the picture that Paul gives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church just to the very end and gave himself up for her that he might make her holy, make her better, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, not as appendages, not as ownership, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he goes back to Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's that unity. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
You see that? It's going, this marriage is great. This thing that's talked about in Genesis, but it speaks beyond its own self and points to the desire God has for relationship with his people. This mystery is profound, he says. So I asked Katie if I could share this. Well, I didn't tell her exactly, but she gave me kind of a blank check to share. I know for sure that she has wanted to leave me several times over our marriage. I absolutely know that. And probably deservedly so. I know I seem great. I remember one time, just speaking on my end, there was times when, we, when the kids were young, we got two boys, and they're, they're kids, and it's hard. Just life is hard. We have health issues in our family. There's a whole host of things. I remember one time uh, I left the house, and I was living over near Burnside, near Tillicum, and I, and I was heading east towards Blanchard, and I'm like, hmm, I could take a right and head down to Church of Our Lord and lead the Good Friday service. Or I could take a left, <laughs> head up to the ferry, and eventually end up in Tijuana. That felt like a very real live option in the moment. Remember another time where, look, I mess up a lot. I'm usually, I hope I'm quick to acknowledge that. I remember one time I was nailing it as husband, church planner, and father. Like, I mean, nine out of ten dentists would all agree I was nailing this thing. And I came home. I like I'm a main donor in town. I had a church planning coach in town. Everything was going. But I feel like I was nailing it. I came home, and I can remember what her complaints were. But I was so exasperated by them. Then I'm like, I don't even know what to do. So I go take a long shower, and I have this conversation with the Lord. I got, I, and some of you heard this. I said, I cannot love this woman. I'm just exasperated. And I felt like God said, oh, really? Tell me more how difficult it is to love someone so unlovable. I have no experience in this matter. See, God is very sarcastic, and at least in my projections of him, it's speech I can receive. Do you see that second layer of knowing a God who has received me is my absolute benchmark. It is baseline. Because it is a disproportionate relationship. I get way more benefits by far being in relationship with God than he gets from me. I'll tell you that much. And it's not even close. So if that's the case, can I not let even a marriage, one that's intended to be companionship, can I not also let that be imbalanced in her favor and not mine? We always tilt the scales in our favor anyway. And I felt like he said to me, you do not need her affection to love her. It's boot after boot, step after step. That's it. We're still together. It's been hard. There's been some bright moments. 
There's been communion and companionship, and there has been the absence of it. Some are fault, and some just is part of affliction. And so there's this, I got a little bit, but I want more, and it doesn't ever feel like enough sometimes, maybe often, because I have high standards. I want it. I'm an idealist. I'm telling you I'm a romantic. So here's my solution, because this cannot end on just that lame of a note. It cannot end on just press through, boot after boot, you got this. No way. There's only one way, and that is for me and for you. It tests this belief. Is God enough? Can we trust God with our deepest desires and our deepest longings? I'm telling you, this is for you single people too who sometimes idealize marriage and think this will be the thing that solves the most of my problems. Can God be trusted with my desires or will I go somewhere else for comfort? That's how I see it. Here's the solution. Here's how you'd even try to do this. This is my only means. I mean, there's lots of practical strategies, but here in the end, this is Paul's prayer in Ephesians. And we're going to end here. I'm going to lead this into my own prayer. Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, through trust. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And Lord, we eagerly desire to know that we are loved by you. And to root in that confidence. And would you speak to us in our worry that we are not enough. And would you use this love to form us into a people who are more ready to love as you have loved us. We cannot do what you do not give us the power to do. We need you Lord, we thank you for this longing for communion and for companionship. Would you grant it to us in some way that we can grasp each of us? In Jesus' name. listening to Table Radio, an extension of the life of the Table Church, a community in Victoria, B.C. Our mission together is to love God, love each other, and to love and bless our neighbors so that we may see Christ revealed in common life. Music for this episode provided by the Preparation EP, written and arranged by Coco Reliebe, and can be found at thetablechurch.bandcamp.com. To learn more about our community, please go to tablechurch.ca.